Welcome to the Dildorks Dorky Discourse on Sex, Dating, and Masturbating. My name is Kate Sloan. I'm a sex journalist, a sex blogger, and a very anxiously attached polyamorous person. So that's a fun life. Who are you, friend? <laughs> I'm Bex. I'm a sex educator and a sex blogger, and I'm currently just rolling around in the muck of my avoidant attachment stuff, because that's a fun quarantine hobby. <laughs> You know, what better time to work on your attachment issues than when you can't really attach to that many people? Yep, locked alone in the room. Great time to contemplate loneliness. It's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, also a great time to try to have multiple relationships. Just like fun all around. Um, The reason we're bringing up polyamory and attachment issues is because our guest today is the wonderful psychotherapist Jessica Fern who is an expert on these two issues separately and specifically how they intersect. So Jessica, thanks for coming on. I would love if you could tell us a bit about who you are and what you do. Yes, thank you. I think you just did it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am a therapist. I'm a coach. I speak around the country. I have uh, international private practice where I specialize in non-monogamy and attachment and trauma. And then I just wrote this book, Polysecure, which kind of brings all those things together. Yeah, yeah, I just finished reading the book today, and I loved it so much because it's it's just one of those things that, like, you read it and you're like, how did this not exist before? Like, this obviously <laughs> needed to exist, right? And, like, you've created a thing that just, like, needed to be in the world and that I wish that I had had so many times before when people have asked me about this. Yeah, Thank you. And that's exactly why I did it. It was even from my own need of being with a partner. And we're like, how do we do this? (laughs) It's non-monogamous and you're anxiously attached and I'm kind of disorganized, right? (laughs) And we couldn't find the resources. So yeah. Yeah, I really like that you've like gone through the research and literature that exists about attachment theory and basically just like stripped away all the monogamy centric stuff that is not useful Mm -hmm. for people like us, Um, which like, as you note in the book, like when you're a polyamorous or non-monogamous person, like reading attachment literature, you so often just have to like mentally filter and like translate and, you know, recontextualize things that you're reading and you've just like done that work for us. And yeah, I would love to know like what got you like a little bit more about what got you interested in the intersections of non-monogamy and attachment theory. Yeah, well, I, you know, I give it in the intro, I talk about being with a partner, and then also and us trying to figure this out and not finding resources and um, seeing it in my clients, but it really starts a lot earlier than that. And, you know, I was non-monogamous, and then I was monogamously married for years. And we opened up into full poly and it was rough. (laughs) And and we were a secure couple. Like we really were. We weren't even pretending. It was like we had a solid foundation together. Like we felt so secure together in a lot of ways, even though we were sexually uh, exclusive, we were non-traditional. Like he could sleep at his best friend's who's a female's house kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or we could travel apart, you know, all those things. And we opened up and um, he really started melting down in ways that we had just never 
predicted we had never seen Mm -hmm. and in through processing it you know one day both of us were like oh my goodness you're having a preoccupied anxious attachment like and he was like I think I've actually had this my whole life and never seen it (laughs) yeah so it was really and it took us months it took a you know spiritual trip to do ayahuasca for him to go to Peru like it was it was a lot right um for us to sort through this so that was really like brought it to my obviously my house my relationship and then Mm -hmm. in actually living being polyamorous and making that my specialty as a therapist I would just see it again and again yeah I I really love that in the book you point out that Sometimes monogamy can kind of mask issues with attachment because it creates this sort of like structural security yes. um, without you needing to work on your own internal security, which like I'd never seen someone say it quite like that before. And I was mm-hmm. like, that is so real. And this is like also the same reason why people having, you know, being triggered by these kinds of issues will tend to like cling to hierarchy or like rules in their poly relationships, um, which I know from experience is just like a band-aid. And it's it's yeah. weird how like even knowing that I still find myself wanting to do that because mm-hmm. that just feels like the safest, most comfortable thing, even though I know it's not really solving the problem. Right. It feels like a security blanket. Yeah, but I think this issue of like, where do we get our security from? And I'm okay with people having structure, um, Mm -hmm. but don't depend on your structure for your security. Depend on your relational experience is really what I want to see in partnerships or relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I I think it's like... I don't know, that speaks to that very human desire to, like, I'm feeling a bad feeling. (laughs) Something about the outside world has to change to make it stop. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because clearly something is making me feel this way. Exactly. And I think that's, regardless of whether we're talking about monogamy or polyamory, that, like, impulse to, like, well, I'll create a rule so I never have to feel this feeling again. Yeah. And then everything will be better and fine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It just becomes a control, control strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not actually addressing the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, like kind of a related thing, but almost at the other spectrum in terms of like taking emotional responsibility, I feel like I hear this really common wisdom in polyamorous circles that's like, if you're having a difficult feeling in your relationship, like if it's jealousy or if it's fear of abandonment or like anything is being triggered, there's often people who will counsel you that like, this is your problem. Yeah. You need to take time to sit with your feelings, work through your feelings yourself, take responsibility for them and don't put your shit on your partners. And like, mm-hmm. I see where that is coming from, mm-hmm. but I've always kind of thought that that was an incomplete approach. <laughs> I would love to know your your take on that. Yes. I'm so glad I completely agree with you that it's incomplete. Like that is one part of the equation is yes, if you're having feelings, pause, tune in, see if you can self-soothe, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, But it can also, people can use that as a way of just promoting like a hyper-independence, you know, Mm -hmm. that like, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of times what we're feeling also in relationship isn't just a personal issue, it's an interpersonal relationship issue. And so being Mm -hmm. able to know the difference, like 
no, this isn't just me being jealous in the like, I'm possessive, I want, you know, way. Mm -hmm. Like this is, um, you're not showing up in the way that you've been showing up for the last year. And we need to get to why that's happening. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, knowing the difference between when it's just my own stuff that I need to work on, or this is actually a relational issue. And what's confusing is a lot of times it's both, Mm-hmm. You know, that there is a relational issue to address together as well as sort out, you know, okay, these are my triggers right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it feel they feel like two parts of yeah. the same process, right? Yeah. You have to do the homework before you show up to the conversation <laughs> so you can be a participant in it, you know? Um, I, think, I think people who fall back on that advice of like, well, they're your feelings, you deal with them. Yeah. I think, I feel like that tends to be very rooted in this idea of like, well, your partner isn't responsible for regulating your emotions for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's true, but it doesn't really take into a f- account the fact that like, I do, however, want a partner who is still invested and interested in the process and isn't doing it out of obligation, but I can still appreciate that involvement and that trait in a partner and that kind of support, you know? Yeah, I think there's a difference between trying to fix your partner versus or expecting your partner to fix you or the problem Mm -hmm. (laughs) versus support, right? Like, I'm be here with me or I'm here with you. Um, but this isn't mine necessarily to fix for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One one thing that I really took away from um, your book, as well as the teachings of Clementine Morrigan, who is an mm-hmm. educator and writer who focuses on, oh, good, you know them. Yeah. Um, they're so great. Um, mm-hmm. But they focus kind of more on like the trauma side of things and like regulating your nervous system. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, something that I found helpful from both your book and their work is like, discussions of like co-regulation or co-soothing because like yeah there is definitely something to be said for having the skills to soothe yourself like you definitely need them in non-monogamy when for example your partner is out on a date and you are at home alone like that's really for me like one of my most triggering times Mm -hmm. and like I I do like really lean on those self-soothing skills at those times but they're not they're not the only tool that you can use and like you can definitely soothe your nervous system with a partner and a partner can be there for you to help you through that and you talk a lot in the book about like attunement like emotional attunement and how important that is to secure attachments and I just really appreciated that perspective because I so often feel like polyamory culture is like almost like libertarian or something like it's just very like your problems are your fault and you're left to deal with it on your own yeah 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 exactly (laughs) And, you know, it also depends on what attachment style someone is coming from, right? So Mm -hmm. if someone's more preoccupied, they do need to focus on more of the self-soothing end of things Mm -hmm. Um, and then learn how to co-regulate in a way that's not sort of taking from the other person. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas if someone's more from the avoidance style, they need to learn more how to co-regulate because they're really good at just doing the solo thing, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> or or it's not even and what I say in the book too is it's not actually self-regulation it's usually auto-regulation because it's not yeah, like the, I definitely identified with that yeah part. <laughs> yeah it's like you're not actually tuning in you're just knowing how to zone out and not deal with it right? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. just real real well-practiced repression strategies it's fine <laughs> I'll deal with it in 40 years it's it's fine <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. I like that. I like in the book that you're, um, I mean, not totally encouraging of what you call like auto regulation strategies, like distraction, tuning mm-hmm. out, watching TV, masturbation, whatever. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like you're not 100% dismissive of them in the way that some people I know can be, like, very prescriptive against those strategies. And, like, I've always thought it made more sense to take kind of a harm reduction approach and be like okay like maybe you're gonna address and sit with your feelings for a little while and then let yourself zone out because you've like done some hard work or like maybe you're gonna let yourself zone out when you know you're overwhelmed by a lot of things in life and you just don't have the emotional energy to like actually address what you're feeling right now and I think I I like that you you know acknowledge that as like potentially a valid strategy, but like not always the most like healthy or helpful strategy. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think some of those things, it's just a matter of, um, probably dosage, right. And intention. Mm -hmm. Like there's some days where I've had a really hard day and the medicine for me is like, yeah, I'm just going to watch an episode of, so you think you can dance. And like, (laughs) that is what I need to zone out. But if I watch four episodes, (laughs) It's pushed it too far, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so it's Mm -hmm. knowing that that range too of like, okay, when is some zoning out actually medicinal and when is it just avoidance? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, The other side of that that I find helpful is in just having the name for it so I can recognize Mm -hmm. the behavior when I've already slipped into it. Yeah. Like when I'm like, wow, I've been watching So You Think You Can Dance for four episodes. <laughs> Do you like That's so usually not a great too? sign. For me, it's I've been doom scrolling on Twitter for an hour now. Or this the Great usually... British Bake Off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like this is this is uncharacteristic for me. Uh what what am I avoiding or what is there the thing? Because I it's very easy for me to get into avoidant behaviors without mm. Like, I mean, noticing that's what I'm doing. That's kind of how avoidance tends to work, right? Exactly. It just appears to distract you from the bad things so you don't have to deal with them. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a big part of it for the more avoidance style is like just that sort of mindfulness and self-awareness piece increasing. And even just starting by naming what you're doing, even if you don't change what you're doing initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much of that comes from me just like looking at myself from the outside and being like, "What you doing right now? <laughs> what? Mm, how do you feel about that?" <laughs> yeah, I found the naming really helpful for me on the anxious side as well because, like, uh, like Clementine Morgan's zine about this is called "Love Without Emergency," which mm-hmm. I think is so apt because, like, when I'm having one of these crises, it does feel like an emergency. Like, it yeah. feels like. My relationship is at stake. My value as a human being is at stake. Like, I need to address this right now. I need to talk to my partner or I need to make some big decision. And uh, in learning more about how that functions, I've learned that that's essentially an altered state when I enter into that headspace. Like, it's like a fight or flight freeze type of thing. And it's like, it's not a good place from which to make decisions. And like you say in the book, um, I really like the way you said it. like you can when you're when you're talking to your partner about issues you've experienced you can speak uh about those responses but you shouldn't speak from them yeah um yeah because yeah I would love if actually you could say a little bit more about that because I loved that insight yeah that comes from internal family systems 
IFS, mm-hmm. which is a therapeutic modality. And it's all about parts work, you know, and we all mm-hmm. kind of intuitively know that when we say something like, well, one part of me wants to do this, but the other part of me doesn't, you know. Mm-hmm. And so one of the distinctions that's made in IFS is we can um, speak for our parts on behalf of them instead of from them. Because when we tend mm-hmm. to speak from them in this sort of blended way, we're only seeing life through that perspective, mm-hmm. right? Or the situation. So as you're describing this like panic, anxious, sympathetic nervous system state, right? And mm-hmm. when you speak from that place, it usually doesn't go very well, Yeah. right? <laughs> and you, I mean, the, all of us, you, right? Not just specifically you, <laughs> right? But we, also specifically me, right? Yes. <laughs> right? But when we speak from that part, if I can even make that semantic distinction, but then it actually becomes more than just a semantic distinction to be like, oh, the anxious part of me right now is really struggling with this. Mm -hmm. Just that speaking as an advocate for the parts that are struggling um, can really help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons that books like yours are so useful because it's just the way the human brain works, like just like labeling things, naming them, understanding what they're called is so helpful, especially if you have a partner who is willing to join you in that journey yeah. of like knowing those terms. And like I have certain like shorthand terms with my partner that we've learned so that when I'm triggered or when I'm depressed or anxious or feeling very attachment issues activated like I can communicate that and not have to like explain it every single time or like explain what I need when I'm in a headspace where I really am not able to explain what I need totally yeah exactly and like I was went through a phase of being pretty fearful avoidant for a moment and my partner and I had that shorthand too where I'd be like I'm in a flare-up and just saying (laughs) that like we had our protocol. <laughs> like, he knew, like, okay, we're gonna stop talking. I'm gonna put my hands on you. <laughs> yeah. So one of the questions that I had written down here, mm-hmm. I'm now realizing, is perhaps too big to even <laughs> to even bite. <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, all the listener, like, I asked our listeners for questions, and mm. basically all the questions I received were some variation of like, um, what can I do with like with regards to like my attachment issues and uh non-monogamous relationship which was just basically like what your book is about so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like some of the most common manifestations maybe of attachment issues in non-monogamous relationships and and how those can be addressed yeah I know it's a huge topic because it's your book right it's a huge topic but right to give some semblance of an answer right is, um, well, some of the, yeah, the most common things I see, and in the book I do talk about the way that, you know, especially people transitioning from monogamy to non-monogamy, like their individual insecure attachment can get exposed or Mm -hmm. the relationship they're in actually being insecure or they were depending too much on the structure, like all of that gets exposed in the process, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But when polyamorous or non-monogamous, there's two things that I see most often. And one is that non-monogamy can start to mimic the conditions of a preoccupied, anxious attachment unintentionally, where Mm -hmm. a partner 
as they start to date more or bring in new partners, they become more um, inconsistent or not mm -hmm. as accessible or not as quick to respond as they used to be. Mm -hmm. And so there's then this other partner who's no longer getting the same degree of their attachment base needs met. Mm -hmm. And they start mm -hmm. to flounder. <laughs> and they're usually labeled as just being jealous. But in, in actuality, it's like, no, it's their attachment system saying, wait a minute, you know, I'm not getting the same amount of need fulfillment that I'm accustomed to, or that you've mm -hmm. been giving me. And I don't like it basically. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. So that's something I see a lot um, is that it's hard to manage multiple partners and time, mm -hmm. you know, that that mm -hmm. is just a reality that happens. And for people, especially if you've been monogamous and you are used to getting all of your needs met or enough of your needs met by one person, it can be really difficult in that way. Mm -hmm. um, the other manifestation I see is that non-monogamy can start to mimic the environment of sort of a disorganized experience, especially when you have a couple that's transitioned that was monogamous and they used to be each other's everything and they used to be each other's go-to and like primary support. Mm -hmm. And now the person that you want or expect comfort from is triggering you all the time. <laughs> Because they're dating other people, even if it's yeah. all consensual, right? Mm -hmm. And so that becomes this diff like really difficult thing to work through of like, I want you, I need you, I love you, I don't like you, get away from me. Right? <laughs> yeah. right? Like, you're the cause of my pain, but come make me feel better. You know, it'd be, it's that one foot on the gas, one foot on the brake that gets really confusing. Yeah, it's confusing for everybody involved. It's I confusing think. <laughs> for everyone involved. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, with any of these, it's really the way I work with it is, is starting to tease apart, okay, how much of this is a relational issue that can be addressed with sometimes it is better communication, better time management, better calendaring. Sometimes it's that simple, even though it feels way bigger, you know, or is being experienced mm -hmm. way bigger. Um, sometimes it's getting better at like, you know, what does quality time look like and what do, does everyone need from their time together or mm -hmm. focusing more on love languages and reassurance and things like that. Um, but sometimes there has to be a lot of cleanup because unintentionally people there, cause there's no roadmap with non-monogamy, a lot of harm can get caused Mm -hmm. You know, and there has to be like relationship repair work. That's, you know, deeper work to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really liked in your book that you had a section near the end where you talked about the idea of like either closing the relationship yeah. for a time or putting a pause on certain types of yeah. dating or sex outside the relationship so that one or both partners can work on their attachment issues. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like so often in poly literature, it's again like that's your problem to deal with and it becomes very like how dare you like limit your partner's yeah. abilities and freedom and like I understand where that's coming from because freedom is obviously like very important especially to you know th there's yeah. a certain type of person who like really really values it um, 
But at the same time, like, it's, I don't know, I feel like it's really, really difficult bordering on impossible to work through these issues when you're just being triggered, like, every other day. Yeah. And I really appreciated you acknowledging that. Mm, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get it, too. I understand the sort of the importance of freedom, but we need freedom and connection, you know, and mm-hmm. finding that balance of both. And I've just... Even though theoretically I might say the same thing in practice, what I see with so many people is like it becomes impossible and it becomes traumatic, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes, yeah, there needs to be a pause or just a certain like, can we keep this, the partners as they are for a certain amount of time just so we can, mm-hmm. I can heal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I and I am a person who comes to polyamory because I have I put a really high premium on freedom mm. and like personal independence and all of that. So like I am that guy, and at the same time, that doesn't absolve you from empathy, right? right? Like right. these people are my partners. This is a partnership. This is a thing we're in together, presumably for our mutual growth, right? So mm-hmm. like I can put a premium on independence and that doesn't mean i need to nope the fuck out of anything my partner is working on unless i think it's shiny and sexy yeah 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 exactly well said (laughs) (laughs) um i feel like some of the questions we got from listeners were basically this which is also something that i wonder um at times when non-monogamy starts to feel really difficult because of the attachment issues Mm -hmm. that you're working with to the point that you're almost ready to be like you know what fuck it i'm giving up yeah yeah like what do you recommend in those moments to help like remind yourself of why you chose non-monogamy or like recommit yourself to it yeah i think when attachment issues become so unbearable and someone just wants to go back to monogamy i mean a lot of it depends on whether they're in partnerships or not you know Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. if you're able to just pause your own relationships that's one thing if you're asking your let's say spouse to no longer be uh, polyamorous as well that's a totally other thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, in those, I mean, I think as long as someone's getting the support they need or they have a path to work on their attachment, Mm -hmm. um, really writing down even, but having the clarity of like why polyamory is important or Mm non-monogamy is important. And for some folks, that's more of their orientation. So it's like, this is just who I am. Um, Mm -hmm. Or for other folks, it's more of like, these are my values and being able to connect with those values can help sort of be, you know, like a lighthouse in the storm sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I love that. Kate and I have also talked a lot about um, doing similar things for uh, our own mental health struggles Mm -hmm. and like writing down those positives as you're experiencing them or having a, you know, album full of like happy poly memories that you've had (laughs) or like these things that you can create when you are in a headspace that can like kind of experience that kind of joy and revisit it when you're in these like deeper, darker, uh, more difficult times. Yes. And Mm -hmm. I, Another thing uh, Kate and I have talked about in that time is uh, 
just thinking about like like the way Kate was saying this is kind of an altered state so mm-hmm. being like okay I feel this way I desperately want to pull the plug on everything and shut it all down because I'm terrified <laughs> maybe yeah. I'll do that tomorrow <laughs> maybe I'll do that this weekend yes I like that like delaying it yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. See how that person feels. Maybe I'll maybe I'll make that decision after they get home from the date. Yeah. Maybe I don't need to call them during it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm realizing as you say this too, there's a parallel with how I work with people when like suicidality comes up. Yeah. Um, and there's a way where someone's like, I wanna die, um, or I don't wanna exist anymore and you know, just even asking, well, okay, is it that you that don't, you don't want to exist anymore or what else needs to die in your life? You know, what, Mm -hmm. what can you no longer bear? It's not necessarily the entire person, but it might be something else. Mm -hmm. And that is actually changeable, you know? And so, yeah, like when the attachment issues feel so extreme, like first watching the tendency to catastrophize and totalize, (laughs) Mm-hmm. Right. It's garbage, throw it all away. Right, exactly. Right. This <laughs> is hard. My avoid so it's mass. All, exactly. <laughs> this is difficult. It's all trash. Yeah. I hate it now. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, say, okay, but what here um does need to change? You know, what here mm-hmm. do I need to address or is addressable? So that could be another mm-hmm. thing there too. Yeah, I that really resonates for me as uh, I, I have ADHD, which will often make one small problem just become a wall. Just I can't even think about it. I can't address it. I can't yeah. unpack it. And really, like, when I finally get the ability to, like, sit down and really, like, pull it apart, it's like, oh, there was just this little tiny pebble that was in my way. That's what I couldn't walk past. Okay. <laughs> well, it was just this one little little thing I had to tweak. But my brain will just be like, nope, not addressing it. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I love all of that advice. I've also sometimes found it helpful to think about like my past experiences with monogamy and think about like why those didn't quite work for me, um, which always ultimately leads me to the conclusion that like polyamory is hard, monogamy is hard, like relationships are just hard and they'll be hard in different ways depending on how you structure them. But like, I think ultimately that just makes me want to choose the structure that feels most in line with my values, like you said. Um, and yeah, that that helps to remind me that like even if it's really, really hard, I should still keep working on it. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. This idea that it's going to be easy is interesting. Like where does that come from in each of us? You know, that it should be easier things that are hard or bad. Right. I think it's easy to assume that monogamy is easy because it's the default. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, it's the one everywhere. I don't have to learn all this other weird stuff. And we have all of these, we have all of these images of successful monogamy in our pop culture and just in the zeitgeist at large, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just so baked into our understanding that like, this is what successful monogamy looks like that I think our brain just goes, oh, yeah, no, it's got to be easy. I know the steps for that. I've seen that a million times. Yeah, yeah, no, I know how to do that. I don't have to make all these complicated, like, decisions or things. Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it makes me think of the relationship escalator and Mm -hmm. and that, you know, 
the, yeah, getting on an escalator is easier to some degree. Right. <laughs> like, right. If you want tech- to be at the top of the escalator, it is the easiest way to get there. But if you want to stop at the middle of the stairs, the escalator is going to make that a lot harder. Right. Yeah, exactly. And if you want to use your body or not use your body. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what areas are we talking about easy because right there's so many things about monogamy i'm like that's not easier (laughs) like that is really hard (laughs) yeah there's a lot of expectations on that that are near impossible (laughs) i would deeply struggle within monogamy i am not made for that Mm -mm. (laughs) well one of the questions that one of our listeners asked was are there relationship styles that are more suited to certain attachment styles and i feel like you would say Mm -hmm. No, but I'm curious what what your take is. Yeah, good question. I probably would say no. <laughs> well, I think I think we need to be more secure to do non-monogamy for sure. Mm-hmm. But and I think mm-hmm. a lot of the insecure styles actually wouldn't want to do non-monogamy. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's the myth that people doing non-monogamy are more avoidantly attached. And that, mm-hmm. you know, research shows that's not the case at all. That's just a myth. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, if you actually look at an avoidant style, you're like, they don't want to deal with multiple people, actually. <laughs> that's a lot of so work. So many more scary things. Right, there's so much more conversation and process and vulnerability. Like, no way. <laughs> I am curious. Mm-hmm. Um with this because you so you say you know you want folks to be more securely attached going into polyamory which like totally makes sense to me um at the same time um i think there is like this really common understanding that like um you have to have your shit together before yeah 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 that's kind of like my worry of like falling into that trap of uh you know almost the same way someone's like oh i can do that when i lose five pounds right totally Mm -hmm. i'm allowed to do that when i you know when i have figured out this other thing of my life when my life is perfect then i will have access to these wonderful things like polyamory Mm, right right and i'm wondering if there is space for folks to be like conscious of their shit like i often joke i have a to-do list of shit that i need to like work through and once i get through the stuff at the top the other things will get easier but like i know they're there i recognize Mm -hmm. that's my shit and like in the meantime my partner will sometimes like make little accommodations around i'm like yeah no i know this isn't great but it's what we're working with so (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh two years from now i might be able to address it we'll see (laughs) yeah Yeah, I don't think – well, and this is the problem too is that you can have all your shit figured out in air quotes and then people Mm -hmm. open up and it's a totally different paradigm and none of it's relevant. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, like suddenly all the way your shit was put together in monogamy is not relevant for how it needs to be assembled in non-monogamy, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, Yeah. I'm with you. Like, it's not about being completely healed, perfect, ready. Um, I don't think that's possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I Um, think a lot about um, the, like – I don't know, this cultural dichotomy we have between, like, good guys and bad guys, too, mm-hmm. where we're like, I have my shit figured out, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm fine. I can't possibly be causing this problem because I've done the work, and <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am attached, I am securely attached, and I am good. Right. And <laughs> there could be this desire to, like, throw away this 
uh, self-reflection entirely. Yeah, totally. Yes. You were saying just being conscious about Mm -hmm. like where you are, you know, and I think, I mean, if someone feels like they're having such severe attachment issues that like being non-monogamous is going to be traumatic for them, then I'd be like, yeah, don't run into that, right? Don't run into that fire right away. And yet I also see how someone who's like, I am having attachment issues and non-monogamy can be one of the really amazing way to heal them and work through them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, especially with some someone who's, well, I could make a case for actually all the styles, but I'll just use the example of a more anxious <laughs> preoccupied where it's like, yeah, no, don't jump into one relationship and get super attached super fast. Like actually experience yourself and your mm-hmm. autonomy um, through multiple people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be a great way for someone to kind of um, fortify that self that needs to be fortified more. Mm-hmm. And just practically, I find polyamorous folks are the ones who already have this language. Yeah. Like, just predisposed to want to get nerdy about our relationship yes. and to be like, hey, this is these are the things I'm currently unpacking in my own work. What are you working on? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love the part in the parts in your book where you talk about how non-monogamy can be healing for people with attachment issues. Because I feel like so often when I hear this come up, it's like your attachment issues are framed as something you have to like battle against mm. and like, you know, do monogamy or non-monogamy despite them. And um, I, yeah, every time I kind of like reorient my brain to think about like that I'm I'm working on like a, an avenue of growth by working on these issues it, mm-hmm. it just helps me like see the bigger picture so much more easily because in the moment it can so feel like I'm just like trying to solve one emotional crisis at a time and it's just you know uphill like Sisyphean and and when I can see it as like potentially like a place for growth and healing mm-hmm. it it just really helps me feel more like it's worth it yes good <laughs> Yeah, well, and it makes me even think of, like, attachment in childhood, that if there's insecure experiences with parents, it often can be these peripheral or other attachments beyond the parents that can be really what's healing, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, so, like, non-monogamy can mimic, in a positive way, that kind of experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm also thinking... um, like in those same lines um the way that like a lot of my attachment stuff is because i was solely responsible for a lot of my mother's emotional maintenance it was just me and her for a lot of growing up and Mm -hmm. i took care of all of her feelings so like there's a lot of power in my partner having other people that are also responsible for their shit like i've been feeling such like solidarity and joy lately towards my metamor just about like yeah we're the boyfriends we take we take care of our partner together i'm like (laughs) it's just like this really sweet like oh ash has two daddies like it's really cute (laughs) Um, and like just it, it feels really powerful to be like oh i know that there is also someone else who cares about them as deeply as I, like as deeply as i do in similar ways to the ways that i do and also has their back on days when like i'm fucking tired yeah. <laughs> 2020 is a lot you know yes yes yeah you i actually 
the way you're framing it, we have a real parallel there. I had a similar upbringing with my mother. And then so, of course, mm-hmm. mimicked that in my marriage of like, oh, I'm the caretaker, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my husband at the time um, had a really severe autoimmune condition that was like a big thing in our relationship, like a lot to care for. Right? Mm-hmm. And when he got another partner who was like, with him on a day that he wasn't feeling well, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I don't have to deal with this today. And not that I didn't want to keep caring for him, but to not hold it all by myself, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to share the weight of something like that was awesome. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And it, and to speak (laughs) of it, even in attachment, it helped me soften some of the, like my, dismissive or avoidant like I'm an island into myself and like oh I can start leaning more into interdependence this is pretty cool (laughs) right and like knowing that on the days when I need support from my partner they have someone else backing them up right right like Mm -hmm. it just feels like our whole net like network of support uh, among our friends and my metamors is just wider yeah you know what I mean there's there are other people that can kind of lean on each other and back each other up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is really powerful when I'm used to being like, oh no, if I am failing, this person has nothing. Yeah. If I'm tired today, guess they're fucked. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you about therapists because uh, you are a psychotherapist yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, I recently went through the process of trying to find a polyamory competent therapist and like I live in Toronto where it was actually fairly easy to find one but I I know that it's not as easy for everyone so I was wondering if you have any tips on maybe figuring out whether a therapist that you're considering seeing is going to be competent about non-monogamy or even like educating or helping your current therapist to understand these issues yeah great question um literally before we got on this call even my client was telling me about like the pain they had with the previous therapist who basically told them that their more solo polyamory orientation was, you know, from their attachment avoidance, right? Mm. Yeah. And their their fear of commitment. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know? yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I make this distinction. Um, a lot of people now, I think, you know, LGBTQ was sort of the thing a few years ago, 10 years ago, and now it is becoming non-monogamy where everyone wants to like put that on their website or on their Psychology Today profile as like (laughs) non-monogamy friendly, right? And Mm -hmm. I I tell people, make sure there's a difference between being non-monogamy friendly and non-monogamy experienced. Mm-hmm. And so if you're looking on someone's website, is this just like another tab or like that they have um, like hashtag or, you know, label they have? Or do they actually talk about non-monogamy on their website? Because this is like a specialty of theirs. So trying to tease that apart, you know, mm-hmm. is it just one thing in a list of many? Um, but, you know, most therapists will do a free consult call. And so I'd really, you know, test them in that, test the waters and be explicit even of like, mm-hmm. you know, um, this is my orientation or my lifestyle. How do you, what do you think about that? Do you have experience with clients in this? So just really be forward with those kind of questions 
even mm-hmm. throw in some language, like say, well, you know, in the situation where I was a V or me and my metamor, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's one thing is just vetting people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you have a therapist that you really love and that connection is there and they don't know much about it, um, I mean, personally, I don't feel like the client should have to educate the therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't spend too much session time educating the therapist on yeah. like vocabulary, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a word here and there, but not like, you know, principles and things like that. So of course there's books you can point therapists to, mm-hmm. um, you know, or websites, like even the book more than two or the website more than two that just has all of that vocabulary, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting in writing this book, I wasn't writing it for therapists, but in the like early readers, a lot of the feedback was people saying like, this needs to go to all therapists or, you know, um, <laughs> or someone mm-hmm. reaching out to me and saying, I am a therapist, a teacher, you know, uh, academic in academia. And like, I'm going to make this mandatory for our curriculum. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> So that's awesome. Yeah. So my hope is that this book actually can help therapists who um, need to learn more about this. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they really do want to work with this population. Mm-hmm. Jessica, thank you so, so much for joining us. Uh, this was such an enlightening conversation. I think your book is really fantastic. It's going to help a lot of people. Um, where can people find you and the book online? Yeah. Well, they can find me at jessicafern.com. And the book is um, through Thorn Tree Press. So if you go on Thorn Tree Press's website, you can see all the different places, not just Amazon, but of course it's on Amazon too, but all the places that the book is buyable. Um, and the audiobook will be coming out as well with the publication in October. Excellent. Yes. Yeah, I know. I know I, Bex was really excited about the audiobook. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. I cannot read a damn thing in writing, but I will. I will blow through that audiobook while making a cake and I'm going to enjoy it so much. Awesome. <laughs> and because it was recorded in quarantine, you might hear like my neighbor's dog barking in the back. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, so yeah. It'll just be it'll just be like you sitting there reading to me. It's perfect. That's- I love it. <laughs> Yeah, and one other thing I'd love to mention, if it's okay, um, mm-hmm. but I'm going to be launching in the new year a Secure Attachment with Self program. Ooh, great. Yeah, so it will be like a five or six month program, sort of a deep dive into people really healing their attachment, developing that secure inner self, really learning self-regulation um, so that, yeah, they can have this secure attachment with self and then really just live that in their relationships mm-hmm. yeah that's, that's great that's gonna help so many people i hope so mm-hmm. uh i've been kate sloan i have a blog at girlyjuice.net i have a newsletter at katesloan.substack.com i'm on twitter and instagram at girly underscore juice uh where's your stuff friend 
I'm Bex. You can find all my writing at BexTalkSex.com, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at BexTalkSex. I also get naked on the internet fairly often at this point uh, under the name Billy Lore, so that's at Billy Lore on Twitter, just for fans and many vids. Uh, together we are the Dildorks. You can find us at the Dildorks on Twitter and Instagram and at thedildorks.com. You can also search the Dildorks in your favorite podcast app. While you're there, rate and review us. Brings us up in the charts, makes us easier for other nerds to find. You can even go to Patreon dot com slash the dildorks to throw money at us because it makes you makes us smile and gets you access to our exclusive hypotheticals recordings thank you to protodome who did our theme song thank you to amy who did our logo thank you to our brilliant guest jessica fern and thank you to you for listening until next time folks get out there and live your sexy dorky life bye 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 <laughs> Thank you. Oh, thank you. You all are fantastic. Mm, yeah. Let me think about this one for a second. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably my answer won't be satisfying. We can edit it out. <laughs> like, like, make post post it notes of. <laughs> um.